Well, we are continuing our series, um, Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, this is a series that has started uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, we've worked our way through Genesis now. We're here in Exodus. Uh, and as we get started, I wanted to read this quote to you again uh, from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. But the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes, though it certainly has some rules and heroes in it. The Bible is most of all a story. It's a story about a good world gone bad. It's a story about God's commitment to saving it. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a country far away to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything, to save the ones that he loves. Every story whispers his name. Last week we looked at Genesis 22, a story about Abraham and Isaac. And today we're going to look at Exodus 12, the first Passover, the night that God's people shielded themselves from the wrath of God by hiding behind the blood of a lamb. Before we dive into today's text, let's bring ourselves up to speed. What has happened since Genesis 22? Well, if you remember back in Genesis, God promised that he's going to save and he's going to bless the world through Abraham's family. In his old age, Abraham and Sarah, they get a son named Isaac, right? And Isaac has a son named Jacob. And it's through this line, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. It's from this line that the promised one, this rescuer, is going to come. Well, Jacob, he has 12 sons, and one of the youngest sons is a a boy named Joseph. His brothers hate him. They sell him into slavery in Egypt. And when famine strikes, Jacob's entire family, which is to say the future nation of Israel, goes to Egypt, where Joseph, now Pharaoh's second-hand man, feeds them, and he saves them. Well, Jacob eventually dies, and Joseph and his brothers die too. But their children and their children's children remain in Egypt, and things are good for a while. Exodus begins on a good note. The people of Israel are in Egypt, they are rich, they are strong, and they're many. The land is filled with them. But the the good days, right, the happy days don't last forever. In Exodus 1, verse 8, we read, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. The new Pharaoh fears the Israelites, and he has it in his mind that if war breaks out, they could join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. That's Exodus 1.10. So what does Pharaoh do? Well, he enslaves the Israelites, and he subjects them to concentration camp-like labor. But it gets worse. Right? In addition to the slavery, the Egyptians begin ethnic cleansing. Right? Whenever an Israelite boy is born, the Egyptians go and they tear this boy away from its mother and they throw him into the Nile. But the girls, they let live. And this is the situation for over 400 years. And it's where our sermon and our passage picks up. Okay, The first thing that I want to point out to you, and the first point of today's sermon is that God is aware. God sees our oppression. He hears our cries. He doesn't forget His promises. God's aware. 
The other two points are that God cares and that God spares. But right now I want you to see that God is aware. Right? That He sees our oppression. He hears our cries. He doesn't forget His promises. Turn with me, if you will, to Exodus 2. We're not going to do a lot of hopping around today, but I do want you to go there as we begin. Go to Exodus 2, and we're going to look at verses 23 and 24. Exodus 2, 23 and 24. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God is aware. God sees our oppression. God saw the people of Israel. God knew. One chapter later, when God is speaking to Moses from the burning bush, God says to him, Behold, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have seen the, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. God is not blind to evil or injustice. He sees our suffering. He sees our sin. He sees and He knows. When you sin and when I sin, right? we love to do it in the dark. We love to do it behind closed doors. Like We like to do it in secret. Because we think to ourselves that nobody can see me, right? I can totally get away with this. Whether that's cheating on a test or it's cheating on a spouse. It's taking something that you didn't pay for or taking even somebody's life. Right? The underlying thought is nobody sees me, right? Nobody knows. But you're wrong. God sees, right? God knows, Not only does God see, God hears. Look again at chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. God is aware. God sees, He hears our cries. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. Again, one chapter later, God says to Moses from the burning bush, I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Behold, right, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me. Not only does God see our sin and our suffering, right, He hears of it. You know, you can see something from a distance, but you have to get up close to hear. Right? Which is to say that God is near. He's not far off. He is near. He's near enough to hear. I don't know if you've ever watched the news, um, CNN or Fox News or whatever, with it on mute. The experience of watching the news is a whole lot different, right, when you unmute it, right? That woman whose mouth is just open with it on mute, as soon as you unmute it, you start to hear her cries over her son who was just killed in some school shooting, right? Or her cries over a daughter who was just blown to bits because of a suicide bomber. You can watch it, but as soon as you hear it, it begins to do something inside of you. It, it stirs up your soul. 
It's a little bit more empathetic. How much more is God shook up by our cries of anguish and suffering? God is aware, my friends. He sees, He hears, and He doesn't forget His promises. Look again, chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. God remembers His covenant. He does not forget His promises. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. What's that all about? What is this covenant? Well, it's nothing less than God's promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 12, and then reiterated to Isaac and to Jacob, that He's going to bless all the nations of the earth through this family. Right? That He's going to redeem the world. That He's going to save it, and He's going to bless it. He's going to make everything wrong right again. God has not forgotten this promise. He has not forgotten His promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He said He's going to redeem and rescue this world. And my friends, He's going to do it. He hasn't forgotten. Why is this so important? Why is this important? Well, it's important that you remember that God is aware because when we see or experience evil injustice or oppression we think that God is far away or indifferent this is especially true right when we see oppression suffering injustice that spans many generations 400 years is a long time it's a really long time the United States of America has only been a country for 238 years Israel's in slavery for almost twice as long We think God is far away or indifferent when we bump up against evils like the Holocaust or like 9-11. But it's not just headline-grabbing news that makes us question whether or not God is there or if He cares, if He's aware. Things like divorce, like drug abuse, like homelessness, joblessness, break-ins and even break-ups, right? All of these things can make us cry out, Don't you see? Aren't you aware? Do you even care? God is not indifferent. He's not blind. He's not deaf. He's not forgetful. He is aware. He sees. He hears. He hasn't forgotten. In some, God is aware. But this brings me to our second point. God cares. God shows that He cares in several different ways. God speaks, He fights, and He's going to execute final judgment. God speaks, He fights, and He's going to execute final judgment. God speaks against evil, injustice, and sin. God commissions Moses in Exodus to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. In the Old Testament, as well as in the New, God raises up prophets, prophets like Moses and Elijah, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, John and even Jesus, to speak on His behalf, to call a spade a spade, to call evil evil, to call, evil, or to call injustice unjust and call sin sin. God raises up prophets to call His people to repentance and to face and to follow Him. And though we don't have any more prophets in the biblical sense, that is, people who speak with the absolute, infallible, authoritative word of God, 
Jesus was, in that sense, the last and the greatest prophet, you can still hear God speaking out against evil, injustice, and sin in the voices of men and women like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther King, Wangari Mathai, Liu Xiaobo, and the Pakistani girl Malala, right, who spoke out against the Taliban and defended her right to get an education. Right? We don't have any more prophets in the, biblical, in the biblical sense, people speaking with the absolute authoritative, infallible word of God, right? But we, that doesn't mean that God has ceased speaking. Right? God continues to speak out against evil, injustice, and sin. And he does so every single time, right? He moves in someone to call evil, evil, injustice, unjust, and sin, sin. But sometimes, right? Actually, a lot of times, people don't listen, right? In Exodus 3, verses 19 and 20, God tells Moses, Look, Moses, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. I know that. So here's what I'm going to do. I will stretch out my hand and I will strike Egypt with all of the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. Okay, not only does God speak out against evil, injustice, and sin, right? he actively fights against it. God fights evil, injustice, and sin. In the Exodus story, what we see is God actively fighting on behalf of his people. In the sending of the ten plagues, God is waging war against Egypt and her idols. And he's also demonstrating his power over evil, as well as his love for his people. That doesn't mean that every time something bad befalls a nation, God is responsible for it. Right? Sometimes bad people do bad things. There was a pastor who said that 9-11 was God's judgment against the United States. I don't know how he knows that. He doesn't. We do know that God is judging Egypt here because the Bible says it, right? He's, he's, he's laid it out very clearly that that's what's happening here, right? Exodus 3, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt. I am going to stretch out my hand, and I am going to strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. Well, why is this significant? Why is it significant that God doesn't just speak out against evil, but he's actively fighting against it? Well, it means that God is not just a coach on the sidelines, you know, biting his nails and wringing his hands and getting anxious as his team gets pummeled on the field. Right? He's not an anxious coach on the sidelines just watching us get beat up. Right? More, he's the champion who throws on a jersey and jumps into the fray and wins the game, right? This is the kind of God that you want. It's the kind of God I want too, right? You want a God who's going to fight for you. You want a God who's going to fight for you, especially if you are the victim of evil, injustice, and sin. You want a God like this if you are some sex slave in San Francisco or some indentured servant in India. It's important that you have a God who fights for you if you're one of 300 girls who was kidnapped in Nigeria, or family or friend or of any one of those. You want a God who hates sin and who hates the way that you've been sinned against. You want a God who speaks out against evil and justice, 
And you want a God who doesn't simply watch from the sidelines, but enters into the field, enters into the ring, and fights on your behalf. You want a God like that. And you want a God who's going to judge evil once and for all. Right? Who's going to execute final judgment. Who's going to put an end to all of this madness. God cares. He speaks. He fights. And He promises that a day of reckoning is coming. And that He is going to judge all the sins of the earth. And we get a hint of it here in Exodus 11 and 12. God speaks, He fights, and He will finally judge. He is going to execute final judgment. He is going to execute final judgment. Up until now, up until Exodus 11 and 12, all of the plagues have been mediated through an agent. They've been mediated through Moses. In plagues 1 through 9, God is working through Moses. He tells Moses, Moses, I want you to go over to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him that X is going to happen. Right? The water's going to turn to blood. There's going to be a lot of gnats. There's going to be a lot of flies. There's going to be darkness. And then what I want you to do, Moses, is I want you to stretch out your hands, or I want you to stretch out your staff, or I want you to take some dust and throw it in the air, and it's going to happen. Plagues 1 through 9, God is working through Moses in this way. But it's different here. It's different with the 10th plague. In the 10th plague, Moses issues the warning, but God himself personally executes the final judgment. And because he's the only one who can. This is his prerogative, not Moses's. He is the only one who can execute final judgment. In Exodus 11, verse 4, hear what God says. About midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. I, I personally, will go out in the midst of Egypt... And every firstborn, which is to say the oldest son in the family, in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and the firstborn of all the cattle. God is going to show up as judge, and he's going to execute final judgment. Why on the firstborn? The eldest son represented the family. He represented the family's hopes, dreams, and future prosperity. It's a symbolic judgment, right? In bringing judgment against the firstborn, God is symbolically judging the entire family. Which is to say that God's judgment is total. It's not just over the total family, it's over everybody. Right? It's over everybody. When God shows up in Exodus 11 and 12, He is judging everyone in Egypt. I mean everyone. Everyone means rich and poor. It includes the house of Pharaoh as well as the house of the slave. And everyone means Egyptian as well as Israelite. He's judging them both. Egyptians and Israelites. The only reason, the only reason the Israelites are spared is because God has given them a substitute and a shield to hide behind. And we're going to talk about this in a moment. But they deserve judgment too. True, right? The people of Israel have been sinned against, but that doesn't mean that they are sinless. Yes, they have been sinned against, but they have sinned too. They have not loved God with all of their heart, soul, strength, and mind. They have not loved their neighbor as themselves. They have even gone down and worshipped other gods in Egypt, right? They have sinned too. Which is to say that, yes, 
There are problems out there. Right? God is aware of them. He cares about them. But the, your primary problem is not out there. Your, primarily, your primary problem is in here. Right? It's inside your heart. The sin, the sin that reigns in your heart and it reigns in mine too, friends. All are under sin. All of them. Right? Jews and Gentiles, Israelites and Egyptians. None of us is righteous. No, not one. All of us have turned aside. We all deserve judgment. And this poses a huge problem for us. Because God hates sin and we're all sinners. God hates sin and we're all sinners. Because God is good, because He's perfectly good, it means that He perfectly hates evil. He is of necessity against evil. God hates evil, is disgusted and angered by it, and refuses ever to come to term with it, says John Stott. God's wrath is his vehement repulsion of that which hurts. As Becky Pipper, a famous Christian writer and author, has said, God's wrath is not a cranky explosion. It's a settled opposition to the sin that is destroying the world and the ones that he loves. In the words again of John Stott, sin cannot approach God and God cannot tolerate sin. This is why you and I are at risk. God hates sin and we are sinners. And He's going to come and execute final judgment. He's going to make everything wrong right again. He's going to deal with sin decisively once and for all. But the only way that we can pass His righteous judgment the only way we can pass is, this, is if He provides, as He did on the first Passover, right, a substitute and a shield. This brings up our third and our final point. So far we have said that God is aware. He sees, He hears, He hasn't forgotten His promises. God cares. He hates evil, He hates injustice, He hates sin. He speaks out against it. He's actively fighting against it. And someday he's going to execute final judgment. But this raises an important point. If God is going to judge evil, injustice, and sin, what are you, a sinner, going to do? How are you going to stand on the day of judgment? You cannot and you will not Unless God, in His mercy, gives you a substitute and a shield. This brings us to our third and final point. God spares those who look to Him for salvation. God spares those who look to Him for salvation. The only way that you and I can pass God's judgment is if, in His mercy, He gives us a substitute and a shield And that is what the Passover lamb is, and that is what the Passover lamb is all about. The Passover lamb is our substitute and our shield. First, the Passover lamb is our substitute. God hates sin, right? And all of us are sinners. And God has decreed that the wages of our sin is death, that we all deserve his condemnation, that we all deserve to die. But God, in His mercy, has provided a substitute. Right? One life 
can be substituted for another. But it's not just any life, right? Look at Exodus 12, verse 5. What's an acceptable substitute? Well, God says here that it has to be a lamb. It's got to be a baby sheep or a baby goat. It must be a male, and it must be perfect. Right? Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. A substitute is required for every household, and every household must kill the paschal lamb at twilight, which in Hebrew simply means between the twilights, or between the two evenings. Okay? The lamb is a substitute, but he's also a shield. Right after the lamb was slaughtered, the blood of the lamb would be smeared on the doorposts and on the lintels of the house. See that in verses 7 and 13. When God passed by, he spared them. Not because the people inside were good, right? Because they weren't. Rather, he spared them because they were covered by the blood of a perfect, blameless substitute. Right? He didn't spare them because the people inside were good. He spared them because they were covered behind the blood of a perfect, blameless substitute. God gave them a substitute, and he also gave them a shield. The Israelites were saved because they responded in faith to God's instructions, and they sought shelter behind the blood of a lamb. The Israelites were saved because God, in his mercy, provided a substitute and a shield. You've been here long enough, you probably know where this is going, right? Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Jesus is the true substitute and shield, right? He's the one to whom all of these Paschal lambs were pointing to and anticipating. The real lamb that was going to take away our sins in the world, our real, the sacrifice that was, was going to fully act as our substitute and our shield, right? On the night when Jesus was betrayed, do you know where he was? He was in Jerusalem, right? And he was celebrating the Passover meal. And if you've read or if you've, if you've read or if you have read the whole of Exodus 12, you know that the key features of every Passover meal is bread, it's blood, and it's a lamb. Well, at this particular Passover meal, Jesus' last, we're told about bread, right? When Jesus celebrated Passover in Jerusalem with his disciples, right, on that fateful evening, he took bread, and when he broke it, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat it, all of you. Do this in remembrance of me. At this particular Passover meal, we're also told about the blood. Because Jesus, after supper, he took the cup, and after giving thanks and blessing it, he said, this cup is the new covenant, it's the new covenant in my blood, which has been shed and poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink it, all of you. Do it in remembrance of me. Bread check, blood check. Where's the lamb? Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the lamb. In between the evenings, right around the time when the lambs were being slain in the temple, Jesus was being slain upon a cross. On that night, Jesus, the lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, our substitute and our shield, died so that we can live. 
On the first Passover, God's people hid behind the blood of the Passover lamb. Every Israelite who hid behind the blood of that lamb was spared God's judgment that night. God saw the blood of the lamb and he spared them because a perfect substitute had died in their place. In the same way, everyone who hides themselves behind Jesus' blood, right, all who seek refuge in his perfect life and in his substitutionary death will be spared God's final judgment when it comes. Why? Because he died in our place. He died in order that we may live. He took on our punishment so that there's none left for us. God will see his blood over us and he will pass us by. On the first Passover, right, the substitute had to be a male lamb without spot or blemish. Jesus, God's firstborn son, right, was the true, perfect, blameless substitute that all the other Passover lambs are pointing to and anticipating. Jesus is the ultimate substitute and shield. He is the fulfillment of this type, right? The real Passover lamb, which every other Passover lamb pointed to and anticipates. We live in a beautiful but broken world, right? There is evil and justice oppression and sin. God sees it. He hears it. He knows about it. He has not forgotten His promises. He is aware. And He cares. He's going to save and bless this world of ours. The Lamb who sits on the throne will guide and shepherd His people. The Lamb will guide His people to springs of living water and He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. But until then, and in the meantime, God is going to continue to speak out against evil. He is going to continue to fight against it. And He is going to come and execute final judgment once and for all. How are you going to pass that judgment? Your only hope, and my only hope, is that God will provide a substitute and a shield. A Passover lamb. And thanks be to God, right? He has. His name is Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is our Passover Lamb. Let us go and find our hope and our shelter in Him.